Welcome to Empathy.co. This is our podcast, Humanizing Technology. We ask ourselves, where does technology end? And where do we humans begin? Hello and welcome everybody to a new episode of Humanizing Technology, the podcast of the Ethical Commerce Alliance here at Empathy. My name is Nina Müller, I'm the Ethical Commerce Alliance lead, and I'm the host today. My guest, I'm very thrilled to welcome Penelope Tranberg. She's the co-founder of the Think Do Tank dataethics.eu in Denmark. Hello and welcome, Penelope. Hello, and thank you. Would you like to do a quick introduction of yourself? Yes, um, I have uh, worked at newspapers as journalist for many years, and then around 12 years ago, I changed path and uh, dived into privacy and how to take care of your own data, uh, data ethics and digital self-defense, understanding data. And I've been working with that since. And one of the things uh, I did together with other people was uh, starting dataethics.eu, a think do tank, trying to promote ethical ways of working with data, personal data. All right, lovely. And this is what we're talking about today. Uh, one of your most recent topics of interest has been digital sovereignty. First of all, can you give us a short definition of what it actually means and what it all comprises? Well, it's it's a term I learned from the EU Commission. <laughs> I've been reading about it coming out of Brussels, so that digital sovereignty is that the 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 reason for it is that we have in Europe become too de dependent on other countries' infrastructure, digital infrastructure. Uh, for example, a lot of us are dependent on American services, cloud services, tools, digital tools, and China is also getting into the picture. So digital sovereignty is working towards A, a new scenery where we can actually uh, control our own infrastructure. And we see it within cloud services. Uh, Europe is trying to build up their own cloud services, so we are not too dependent on others. Um, it will take a lot of years to reach that level, but I think it's a very good path to go towards, just like a, a sovereign country is controlling its own uh, roads, roads who can drive on this road, how much does it cost to drive on that road? Should we make new roads or whatever? Uh, we control that in the physical infrastructure. Why don't we do it in the digital infrastructure? So so that's what we're working towards in Europe, some of us at least. Yeah, yeah, I see. And can you, I mean... New technologies are evolving very fast. Can you look back at the about brief but history of how this all evolved and how these dependencies came into being and then having such large impact that this this need for digital sovereignty becomes louder now? The the best example is looking at Google. Uh, when Google started its search engine, it was open for everybody. It was not commercial. It was really, really cool and everybody loved it. And they actually invented this new business model, which you could call free. It was called free. What did that mean, free? It, it was totally free to use, both from 
consumers and businesses and we jumped onto Google and we started using the services coming out of Google. And then after some years in 2001, after the first dot-com crash, then Google had to invent a, a new way, a, a way of making money. And that's where we saw the beginning of um, the, the current advertising model. Uh, Google started with what was called um, um, page index, I think it was called, where they just gave you contextual advertising. So if you search for red wine, you'd get a, um, an ad for red wine. Um, and that's where it all started. Um, and then, you know, all media jumped onto that wagon. A lot of other companies jumped onto this and everything had to be free, free uh, as if you, you didn't pay money, but you, what we didn't realize back then, what a lot of people didn't realize back then was that they paid for something else and that was data. And, 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 and I think Facebook is probably the, Facebook is a company who invented um, how to pay with data. Um, then we got so dependent on it and all newspapers and digital services out there was dependent on whole, this advertising system. And Google got just better and better and better. And they also invented the personalized advertising. So instead of just giving you contextual advertising, what you search for, then they could actually give you advertising for stuff that you didn't that they knew you were dreaming of because they had built big pro profiles of everybody. So in that way, it's, it's a system we became more and more dependent on. And Facebook tapped into that in a very clever way with the social media, but it's the same system working there with advertising, building profiles of people. We pay with data, we become more and more dependent on it. Yeah, although it doesn't really look like it at first sight uh, it more looks like social interaction and well it has a lot of uh, implications there uh, let's not go into that but focus back on social uh, uh, on digital sovereignty sorry so um it means autonomy digital sovereignty means autonomy for technologies but also sovereignty to govern the data produced processed and stored within europe why is that so important and what are the benefits for the individual, for European citizens and European businesses? Well, it's extremely important if you want a democracy built up with European values. Um, if we just jump into an infrastructure which is made in the US, we get their values. And in the US, they also have a capitalism like we have in Europe, but it's a very, very um, tough capitalism where the winner takes it all. In Europe, we have more regulated capitalism where we kind of distribute, distribute the resources more so we don't have the big difference between rich and poor. So if we don't control an infrastructure, we don't control our values. Um, and if we want to continue as a regulated um, capitalistic society in Europe, we also need to control the infrastructure. And that is what digital sovereignty is about. Um, in a democracy, individuals are autonomous and uh, we choose our politicians without being influenced by commercial interests, like we have seen on Facebook, that they, they can really influence um, political 
um, political voting, which is which which is not a typical or a, what I would call a true democracy. Yeah, yeah, I see, and it all sounds very good. But on the other hand, doesn't more control also mean more boundaries? Doesn't it limit the World Wide Web to a merely European web? Doesn't it set limitations to the free and open uh, idea? Yes, it does. And that's that's a very sad part of it all, because we already today see those limitations. We have a Chinese internet and a Chinese understanding of what facts are in the world. We have a Russian internet and we have a Western internet today with the US and Europe and the democracies together, I would say. Um, but Europe is, Europe wants to have a better say in that internet because it's so dominated by American values where the winner takes it all. Um, so I do believe that. I don't think we'll press out the US at all. Uh, we just want to have more influence on what no. values should be in our common internet. Um, that's, that's, I think, most people's hope. And of course, with the war in Ukraine, <laughs> I mean, we are getting even closer together you, with our allies, the US and the, the Europe together, right? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, and I also think that um, companies like Google, Facebook or Amazon, like the big tech companies, won't vanish from Europe. But um, how can we or how can the digital sovereignty and the regulation that comes with it Uh, can enforce a more European approach um, in well, cooperation or, or in in the influence of these tech giants. Um, I mean, they have a big influence on the European economy, so we cannot shut them out I, and we don't want to. Um, no. But yeah. We won't shut them out, of course not. But if we want... A digital sovereignty in Europe. We also have to support European products and services, just like when you buy food, you go local. So if there is an alternative to, yeah, for example, Google Analytics or Google Search or Facebook Messenger, if there is a European well-functioning alternative, why not support them? Why not go local also on digital services? Because if we don't buy those services or if we don't use the services for free, then they will never grow. When you use a service for free, you actually also pay with your time. And the more users a service has, the better it becomes. And that's why it's so tough today for a cloud service to compete against Amazon because they have so much experience collected from all their customers, having used it for such a long yes. time. Uh, and that's why I've, I think in Europe, both companies and individuals, we also have an obligation to support some of the, the many startups who are trying to compete against, against the big ones. We must support them and let them grow. And I can give you lots of examples of really, really good services coming out of Europe. Some of them have been bought by the US, but that doesn't really matter uh, if we just have competition with lots of different services and 
We just don't have, you know, one social network, even though Facebook doesn't, the future of Facebook doesn't look very gloomy or does look very gloomy. Sorry. Um, I do think that we, we really must help push uh, the European market for digital services. Yeah. Yeah. So um, supporting the tech companies or the technologies and, and the, the European platforms, alternatives, um, on the one hand, you know, companies like, or platforms like GZ, Nextcloud, Big Blue Button, to, to name but a few. Um, and the open source, uh, uh, communities in Europe, I think are doing a great job, and uh, supporting, uh, this all. Um, and another key driver, on the other hand, is a more regulatory approach with the Digital Service Act. Can you explain us what it means and what this is all about? Yes, um, if we want to work towards a, what I call a data democracy, it's not enough that individuals and and companies change behavior and start using different uh, European services. That's one thing. Of course, we need regulative, regulatory measures. And uh, we, we do have a lot of them. We have the GDPR, which came out for the first time, which was really has changed a lot with, you know, with the right to portability where you can take back your data and use them and the whole right to your own data with GDPR. And we have the Data Governance Act, which is also doing uh, stuff uh, where you can actually get in control of your own data and share data on your terms. And then we have the Digital Service Act, which is um, in many ways uh, confirming other uh, laws we already have, but enforcing um, the rights of the individual to be safe online. It's about content moderation of social media. It's about protecting children online. It's about not uh, manipulating. Uh, just one little concrete example is that you can't use a specific design measures where because you then manipulate users into something so there are quite a lot of measures in the Digital Service Act, which is protecting citizens. Okay, so the EU, with its different legislative and executive bodies, are leading the way to the digital sovereignty and its regulation. What other stakeholders, for example, from the industry and from academia, are involved in this process? In a digital sovereign Europe, uh, where we have, with a data democracy, where it's not uh, the government who, who who controls people via data, and where it's not big companies who control or via data, but it's you as an individual. We have various stakeholders. Um, of course, we have the government who has to have the good laws and enforce the good laws, and also buy services out of Europe which are compliant with the laws, but also ethical. So the government can move, push towards this uh, trend. And then we have companies that have a responsibility of innovating with privacy by design and give individual, individual users or customers control over their own data. And finally, you have the individual as a stakeholder. We should also participate. We should also uh, demand products which are ethical or private by design uh, and then push forward in that direction. 
that will change it. It's just like the climate. You, you, you just can't rely only on government and laws to change the situation with the climate. Companies, organizations, individuals, we all have a shared responsibility to change the path we are at now, both with the climate, but certainly also with the way we use personal data. Yes, I totally agree. And uh, I would like to use this opportunity to uh, recommend the panel discussion that we recently had in Berlin um, uh, that you can watch online on YouTube. And um, we speak about an individualistic versus a systemic approach in data protection. On the one hand, what you can do yourself um as as a user, uh, as an individual on the internet, and then on the other hand, what um, uh, the system can do to regulate and protect um, from both um, an, an industry as well as from a um, legal regulation perspective. Coming back to our topic of digital sovereignty, the data is not personal data, but there are lots of examples where anonymized data sets were mixed together with other non-personal, with other anonymized data sets. And in this combination, the re-identification could happen, could take place. How can this be avoided? What measures do you think within digital sovereignty when um, more data will be made available within Europe? can be taken to prevent this kind of thing from happening? Well, anonymization is a huge issue and we have to be better at controlling how companies and governments are anonymizing data. Um, nothing is 100% sure, but we can anonymize most data in a, in a pretty anonymous way so that the risk that it's going to be de-anonymized is very, very low. We can also decide that it should be illegal to even try to de-anonymize data sets. So there are different measures we can do. I also believe that we need a kind of a certification um, scheme on anonymization. So if a company wants to take out data from iPhones when they pass on a specific road, for example, they should prove that they anonymize those data. Today, most places, companies will say, well, we're anonymizing data, but who is going into machine to the machine room to actually check that, that, that they're doing it in a correct way? So it's a, it's a big area where we can work with personal data, but we have to be very clear about anonymization and check out if we do it in a proper way. Yes, absolutely. I agree. And I think we're, that's a long way um, down that road. But um, about the digital data strategy, I read on the website of the uh, European Commission that, and I quote this, the EU will boost the development of trustworthy data sharing systems through four broad sets of measures. Number three, Measures to make it easier for citizens and businesses to make the data available for the benefit of society. So to me, that wasn't quite clear how this can be accomplished without compromising the GDPR and a higher protection of each individual's privacy. What do you think? 
I think what the EU is doing with this is tapping into a trend which we have seen in Europe and the US and Japan, Canada, for quite a while. And you could call it the personal data store movement, if you want to. It's a, it's a, a lot of new startups trying to build new companies, helping individuals take back their data, control their own data. So you can use the GDPR and ask for portability of your data. Okay, you can go to Facebook, take back your data and put it into your personal data pod. And here you can actually analyze your data, but you can also share it with others. And that's what the EU wants you to do, share more data. And these new data sharing intermediaries are regulated in this law and they can help you share data. But you are the one who decides the privacy policy. You decide who you want to share your data with. It's not Facebook or Google or thousands of other uh, advertising companies sharing who should know what about you. So, And that is true privacy because you decide who should know what about you when. That is, to me, at least, uh, and I guess to a lot of other people, privacy. Um, but that, of course, demands a lot of education of individuals because uh, most people will today just say yes, 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 when they're asked to share their data. Um, so when we take control of our own data, we also need more education about the possibilities uh, of gaining new insights into your own life from your own data. Oh, yes, absolutely. And I think because it's not the, yeah, well, but I've got nothing to hide. I can click OK. I can click Agree to all data because most people or many people do not know about the consequences or about the possible consequences this may have. Exactly. And I do not think cookie banners will help us there because cookie banners are just a very vague legal description of what can or cannot happen. Um, but it needs, um, uh, we need more education and we need, um, we need better standards of how um, how the data is used, when it is used, and why it is used in what specific context uh, would give us a lot more um, than just have one cookie banner even when upon entering the site even. Yes, and the cookie banner has also been misleading us. It has been a really bad way of enforcing a law because actually the GDPR tells us that if you want to be tracked, you have to opt into tracking. The problem is that the lawmakers or the regulators have been accepting for many, many years that it's been an opt-out situation. So yes. you were automatically tracked for many, many years if you didn't do anything. It should have been the other way around, that you are not automatically tracked and then you opt in if you want to be tracked. And that was not the regulators who changed that. That's actually Apple who changed that. Because Apple started within their Safari browser by blocking by default tracking. So if you want to be tracked, you had to opt in. Yes. And that would have been a wonderful way of enforcing the GDPR. Um, so we can have good laws, but if they're not enforced in the right way, it's, it's no use. And I do think the personal data movement the personal data storm movement will try and change that because then you would actually 
have to understand what you say yes to before you do it. Yes, exactly. I totally agree. Um, uh, yeah, I recently uh, was even on a website where I was um, where I had to actively opt out of receiving a newsletter. It was like, oh, yeah, this is not okay. Um, this wasn't even okay um, uh, in I don't know um, when uh, when all the cookie banners um, all started, and this is even worse now. Um, but for them as a means very clever because usually think you have to opt out, but this way you had to opt in not to receive it. Um, and, and this is the other tricky part that the way things are written and, um, things are designed are, um, very easily overlooked. Definitely. It's, it's manipulation. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's manipulation by design. It's manipulation and like this positive nudging and it's the um, uh, abusing be certain behavioral patterns. Um, yeah. Um, but I would like to go to um, to the Digital Data Act again. And in, in another press release, I read um, also online a similar statement to the one I quoted earlier that... Um, The sharing of data across the EU opens the possibilities of offering more personalized services, which true, which does sound good, maybe too good to be true. I didn't, I didn't really understand because when I heard like, ooh, more personalized services, data sharing data across the EU, where there, it rang an alarm bell inside of me was like, it, This can, there are a lot of risks attached to that, even though at first reading it sounds wonderful. Exactly. What's your take? Yes. Uh, I'm not 100% sure what the EU has been thinking about here, but I think when they talk about data sharing, they mostly talk about non-personal data like industrial data. Yes. But there are really good ways and interesting ways that you can actually share Uh, we don't share personal data, but the way you can get personalized data and personalized services. And I want to give you a very concrete example. Today, if you want personal, if, if today on, uh, on, for example, a newspaper website, you will get uh, personalized content because that newspaper is sitting on a lot of data about you. They have a profile about you. They've got your interests. They've got cookies and so they will personalize content. They're sitting on a lot of data. That's the old-fashioned way. That's a way we don't like, most of us users, we don't like that. Why should you sit on all my data? The new way is a way which the BBC is working with currently. It's, they're pilot testing it. Let's say that the BBC, they have some data about you because you log in and you have been around on the BBC website. But they would love to get a media profile of your Netflix data and your Spotify data, for example. So instead of getting your Netflix and your Spotify data onto the BBC server and sit on all that data, it's pretty risky. Then what they can do and what they're experimenting with is that they can access your personal data store, your personal data pod, and kind of get an analysis of your media profile. So they don't get your data, they just get your preferences in a media profile and they can attach that to their own data they're already sitting on and then they can personalize content to you i do think that's the future 
you sit on your data, you have all your Netflix data, you have all your Spotify data, you have all your Facebook data. You can use an algorithm on that with the service and then you can give out your profile to others whom you trust and you want personalization with. I would like to have personalized a personalized bookstore. I like when Netflix sometimes personalized stuff to me. So they can get my media profile, but they can't get all my data. And I, I think that's a future of personalization. No, yeah, absolutely. I love that idea too. Like, um, uh, I would love to, to see or to receive um, personalized recommendations based on um, from the BBC documentations uh, based on, on my Netflix view preferences. Um, just so, and, and that I'm recommended, for example, music documentaries or whatever, um, that I wouldn't be aware of otherwise. I mean, that's wonderful, isn't it? Exactly. Um, yeah, let's hope um, this will um, this will progress further and um, we, can, we can be part of that. But yeah, another thing that you just meant, mentioned is the risk of all the data. I think this is what many companies and businesses are not yet aware of, that every data point is a liability. Because when once you get a leak, that's a problem, and it's so easy to to make the wrong step, to make the wrong move, and then there you have it, and and then you're sitting there on a huge data leak, and what's going to happen, and and people can sue you. Um, this is a huge liability, so better get rid of that as fast as possible. I think it's a it. It's a big motivation factor for, for a lot of companies, definitely, because one data leak, they lose trust and it's very hard to get that back again. So not sitting on so much data is really good. And in a way, it's also very much living up to the GDPR about data minimization because they don't sit on all your data. They don't harvest all your data. So it's a really, really um, good idea and I'm sure it will gain traction. Yes. Yes, I agree. Okay, so we're almost at the end. Just one last question um, that I wanted to speak to you about is um, facial recognition. The EU Commission is currently investigating if any exceptions might be justified and then once what circumstances. I mean, there have been trials in the past um, here in Berlin where I live at um, uh, at a train station because they have made these tests under um, pro uh, many protests, justified protests, uh, which I think. Um, but would allowing, just for the sake of the debate here, um, would allowing facial recognition not have the reverse effect and um, create even more surveillance um, as opposed to the Digital Sovereignty and Service Act we want to step back from the surveillance and, and create our own autonomy again. Yes. Um, facial recognition is, uh, your face is biometric data and using biometric data should be done in a very careful and limited way. It should not be allowed on everything. And there's also a different uh, way of using facial recognition. You know, I mean, you can have your phone and it recognizes your face and 
you get you use it as an identification. That's one thing. But you can also use facial recognition to read your emotions. Is that okay? I mean, it's it's opening up for a lot of abuse and. Um, I do think as a starting point, it should more or less be legal. And then there can be exceptions. We have one exception here in Denmark, which I think is okay. On the biggest football stadium, there are a lot of football hooligans, and they have a list of 50 hooligans who are banned at the station. So they are allowed by the data authority to use facial recognition only to identify those 50 people. All the others pictures that it would take are deleted immediately and never stored. In that way, it's okay in certain specific areas, like in the airport for security could be okay, but it should not be on every stadium. It should not be in every uh, store or anywhere where people want to use it. Uh, I do think it should be very, very limited because biometric data can be abused and it's going to be abused in the future, especially in the metaverse. It's going to be a, a really huge thing. Actually, today I know that TikTok is using your face to read your emotions. Um, I'm not sure that it's implemented in Europe, but I know it is all over. So they actually read your emotions and then give you content accordingly. And, and that is really something which can be manipulated. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that that's a very um, scary idea to do this. Um, and, and what does it do then to you? Like if you're in a, in a bad mood, does that then um, amplify that mood? Or does it um, uh, move you away from that, steer you away from that mood and, and, and give you other thoughts? Um I find that very difficult. So digital sovereignty um, is to become more um, autonomous with and and to to handle European data more autonomously and to be more competitive in the world market. Well, digital sovereignty, digital sovereignty is a way of implementing a data democracy with European values, where. We are not uh, living up to either US or Chinese standards, but we live up to our own standards. And we are in control of our own infrastructure, digital infrastructure. That's the end goal, I think. And that's also autonomous individuals. Very true, Pranilla. I couldn't have said it better. And with that, we're at the end of this episode. Thank you so much for being our guest on the show. Uh, it was a great pleasure to have you. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I had so much fun of speaking to you today. So thank you everyone for listening. Um, see you next episode. Bye-bye.